The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. What I would say like my work really is kind of rooted in is how can I maximize my time, strengthen my voice and collaborate and build collective power with others mm. to strengthen their verse and their voice and their work. So I think initially it started as community advocacy. I think I kind of always like lean into it, but I think more and more of my work, it really was about, we understand that there are genuine structural inequities. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 8, Episode 102. Amazing. We crossed the 100 episode mark. It's so cool. If you're a regular listener, you've been a part of this journey, and I welcome you and thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm giving you a virtual hug as we speak. Thank you so much for supporting the show, spreading the word, and letting folks know where to find the best conversations with some of the most amazing folks in this space. If this is your first time listening, I am welcoming you as well. You're in the right place as this is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran, podcasting since 2014 with my first show, Podcast Junkies. In case you missed last week's episode, we had a lively discussion with Samuel Bertrand, host of 1.1. He shared his inspiring journey and his vision for revolutionizing the way we grow and consume food. Sam and his team have a passionate drive to solve the world's poor nutrition problem, and their innovative approach includes a patented automated vertical farming solution called Apollo and a direct-to-consumer marketing and sales business known as Willow Farms. Great chat with Sam. If you haven't checked it out already, please do so. It's one you don't want to miss. Okay, we've got several new episodes dropping this week in advance of the Indoor Ag Tech NYC conference, which I will be at as well, so make sure you look for me. This week, we speak to Kiana Mickey. She's the Director of Urban Agriculture for New York City, and in this fantastic episode, we get to bond over our love for New York City and what it was like growing up there. We talk about music, food, and urban agriculture. She talks about the importance of connecting communities to resources, building feasible solutions for communities, and urban agriculture and equity 
in New York City, and it's a model listeners in other cities can listen to and apply as well. We also talk about the importance of innovating hyper-local food production and food sovereignty and the climate crisis. We covered all on this episode. This is a great one, and I can't wait to share it with you. If you're enjoying this episode or any of our past episodes, I keep beating the drum for a rating and a review. So please do that if you have not done so already. Ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP and I'll read yours out next. As a reminder, these episodes are always chock full of great takeaways. As a listener, I want you to focus all your energy on our conversation. So rest assured, you can always visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com to read the full show notes for each episode, which includes all guest links as well. All right, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Kiana... A few words from the folks, the fantastic folks, the amazing folks that could be you too if you're interested that support this show. This year, Indoor Ag Tech is coming to New York City's Times Square and it's bringing together the world's leading growers, retailers, tech providers, seed companies, and investors. Join us from June 29th to June 30th to meet, expand networks, and produce fruitful partnerships. The team has been gracious enough to provide listeners of this show with an additional 10% off of the registration. Simply use promo code VFP when you register and lock that in. And by the way, if you're on the fence, remember that early bird discount ends on May 11th. After a pivotal year for CEA, the summit will explore what's needed to ensure the industry can continue innovating and growing into a crucial part of the global agri-food supply chain. I'm excited to introduce our latest sponsor, Ounce of Hope, an aquaponics cannabis company. Ounce of Hope utilizes aquaponics to cultivate cannabis and seafood livestock. They also perform their own extraction and product formulation in the heart of Memphis, Tennessee. While managing 5,000 gallons of koi and tilapia, Ounce of Hope's system allows for abundant production of fish poop nutrients, which you can now buy online. This product is concentrated plant food for any size garden. Fish poop is free of emulsions, bad smells, and won't burn your plants. Ounce of Hope is giving Vertical Farming Podcast listeners 50% off their first order. So swim on over to ounceofhope.com to experience the aquaponic side of cannabis and use promo code FISHPOOP. How fun is that? So Kiana Mickey, Director at New York City Mayor's Office of Urban Agriculture, thank you so much for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So we were chatting a little bit before we got started about our love for mutual love for New York City. Most of the listeners will know that I grew up in Yonkers, New York. Actually, born in El Salvador, so got the mm. so I did get to enjoy a lot of the different pockets of Latino culture in the city as well. Oh, great! <laughs> but, uh, yes. Yeah, I think after college, went in and lived at Upper East Side, East Village, Lower East Side, Greenpoint. So covered a couple of the different boroughs. I'm wondering what life was like for you growing up in New York. Oh. It's funny, I didn't bop around as much as you did, yeah. but a fun fact that most folks are not familiar with is I grew up, sorry, I was born in Richmond, Virginia, okay. but I grew up here. My mom was a New Yorker and we moved, I've since two and a half, I've been here. So I think I qualify as a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, I think you did too. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually grew up in my mom's like teenage home with my grandparents. Mm. So while my, you know, in the Bronx. Yeah. So I'm from the East Bronx, okay. but I have to rep my neighborhood, which is actually Castle Hill. Okay. Okay. So I grew up <laughs> with a love for music, house music specifically, and yes. DJing. So I still got my turntables and my techniques to hundreds. And so I would make periodic trips into the Bronx to get some gear or to just look through like the latest vinyl shops. And so, you know, oh, the, that's fantastic. So, the, so many different parts of New York. And I think what a lot of people who think of New York City think is just like, they think of just Manhattan. And right. forget about like the beauty that is like all the different boroughs, 
you know, Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, and everyone has got its own flavor. Yes, and, I was just about to say yeah, that. And they've got so many different cultures. I think one of the pockets where they speak the most languages, I think, was somewhere in Queens or something like yes. in terms of the variety. And as you were growing up, did you mm-hmm. begin to experience that? Or when did you become aware of just like the cornucopia of just like cultural experiences that New York City affords? Yeah, it's a great question. Honestly, I grew up in the Bronx and went to schools in the Bronx. However, my mom's friends and connections and a big part of my childhood on my weekends were actually on the Lower East Side. So, you know, being like a 70s baby, 80s kid growing up where some folks felt like they didn't go to the Lower East Side or East Village or St. Mark's Place. It was very much like a second home base for me. So to me, it was like, it gave me the opportunity to really be exposed to different aspects of like culture because you still had like communities that were Eastern European and like very old school, but you continue to have this influx of like artists or just folks just like making by, but bringing their cultures from different parts of the globe, different parts or even like other cities. So they became New Yorkers because they infuse their culture in. And I think growing up at that time and being able to have that experience of seeing you know, music emerge and the mixing of cultures, the vibe that people would come with in terms of like what they brought to the table, in terms of food, what they brought to the table in terms of music, and even bringing some of their reflections and traumas, it really kind of helped, I think, inform what was that unique vibrancy of New York City. And I think for me, it kind of, and especially being able to see that early on, whether it was the good, hard, beautiful and the bad it was like i always kind of felt like new york was a place for everybody but you definitely had to be open to being open you know like how do you be aware on what you're able to bring and are you being like intentional about what you're bringing to community and so being able to kind of see the difference between what i was seeing in like catholic school in the bronx and then what i was seeing like people living, you know, in my neighborhood in the Bronx, but also downtown, it really kind of gave me the chance to learn and see people first and like learn first before like assuming. Yeah, I definitely like that. I went to an old boys Catholic high school in White Plains. So I can definitely... Oh, wait. <laughs> Should we talk about this? Which one? Because I went to St. Catholic. I went to Archbishop Stepanak in White Plains. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I'm oh, 52, okay. so I think we might have some overlap in terms of lived experience. <laughs> yes, we do. And I remember the excitement of like the birth of hip hop and just like yes. buying like my first Run DMC record and just being like, this, these sounds that you would just yes. like have never heard before. And so especially I had a close proximity to it, like I said, because of my passion for DJing and so yeah. it's rare that people get to experience like a re- a the birth of a wave of music or, yes. or an experience and so I really feel like I'm honored and that I was able to live through that because it's it, like you said like being in New York and I didn't get to New York as much in the 80s maybe in the late 80s right. maybe with a fake ID but I'm, we're not gonna <laughs> talk about that we're gonna go there <laughs> but I would go to like after hours places like save the robots like in the east village mm, and so yeah. like, for people New York City folks know about that it's like you would leave the bar at like 2 or 3 a.m and they'd be like do you want to go to an after hours place and I'm like right. where and then just go to some east village place and down some shady set of stairs and then you <laughs> wake up and then you leave and it's like daylight and then we head back up right. to the up upper manhattan and get some like Dominican, yeah. Dominican food up, up town. exactly so, there's just all these unique 
New York City experiences. Do you have any favorites in, in terms of food? Oh, yeah. Well, it's so funny. Like when you were mentioning that, it made me think of one of my earliest musical. Both my parents were really into music, but one of my first personal music experiences was seeing musical youth oh, man. at the Roxy. <laughs> wow, that's cool. And paid for my ticket because I sold with my friends. We sold like trinkets of our parents yeah, yeah. on like the street. Yeah. And then like we were so cute, people like gave us money. So we bought our own tickets. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, but exactly like what you said, it's like to me, there's so much weaving between our music and our mm. food in urban agriculture so even years when i was still a little yeah. kid i didn't really think of it but i think what i notice is i connect a lot of my music experiences with food experiences mm. so when i think about the lower east side i think about Luchescos and you know diners yeah. and you know like all those like you know grandmas like cooking or like your neighbor you know giving you like days and uh, you know yeah but <laughs> you know like pierogies, pierogies and stuff yeah. like you know, so it was like, you know, these pockets of our culture and these like moments in our time where you were able to like have music, you also oftentimes broke bread yeah. before or after. Yeah. And so, you know, you kind of start thinking about neighborhoods and the, like the smells. And I think that's something that kind of always kind of stays with me is like, you know, thinking about certain neighborhoods and what we all kind of bring. It's interesting too, especially nowadays, like I think about how we intersect like music with our food and urban agriculture, like activities and work. I know a DJ who's actually a farmer. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Uh, yeah, Sunny <laughs> Chiba, you know, based out in the Bronx. So it's never too far from my heart, but I realize how deep those ties are and how much I want to bring that to, you know, continue to bring that to New York City, but also bring to folks. But in terms of, like, you know, food spots, yeah. you know, like, you definitely, I think of places like in the Bronx, like La Mirada mm. and Suga, you know, where you have the blending of like different, like Asian and Chinese. Chino blends. Latino. <laughs> Chino Latino, right? I was going to say that, the Chino Latino, you know, or even like yesterday, I went to the Lechonera on, uh, in East Harlem yeah. just because I was like, you know, craving. excited to and craving that, you know, so it's like, it's nice to remember what those flavors and tastes were mm. when I was a kid, yeah. when you didn't know anybody and you were eating, like my mom used to have us eat sushi on her lunch break. She was a health inspector. So she knew all oh, of the good restaurants. Cool. <laughs> she was a city health inspector. Okay. So it was interesting to, you know, for her to kind of share that. And then, you know, you're hungry, you don't know what you're eating, but then you start to realize as you got older, like, oh, these are all the foods of my friends and my family. You know, these are like, you know, and comrades. And so when you get older, now being able to bring that back to folks, I think I didn't realize that until I do this work more, but I realized like that had like a real like standing. But yeah, there's some great Thai food in Queens. Yeah. I recently found out. <laughs> Greek food too in Astoria, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so good. It's, it's so good. I can't think of a better person to show you around and pick the best spots in town than a city health inspector. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I know. It's so funny how like life brings you back to certain things, but yeah. yeah. And so yeah. when you think about growing up there, your lived uh -huh. experience, you start to, you know, you go into school and you start to figure out what you want to study, where you envision working, coming out of college. Take us a little yeah. back in time. You know, what was your mindset at? 
And, you know, what were you trying to achieve or accomplish, you know, coming out of school and what were you looking forward to? Yeah. So folks tend to think like this urban ag work is something I probably went to school for. I mean, I think there are folks now like there are classes and, you know, curricula and, you know, like programs that are focused on food planning, food systems, urban agriculture even. But um, in the 12, 13 years ago when I started in this work, none of that really existed. Or when it did, it was really a f- more of a farm-to-table movement that was still very elitist and very white-led and white-driven yeah. and very academic. So it was like folks that maybe garden themselves or new farmers because they had like second homes and they knew the importance of food and they had some relationships, but they weren't really connected in the early times to like folks on the ground who had been doing similar, you know, grassroots work, similar, you know, guerrilla gardening here in the five boroughs. So I would say for me, you know, I always, so one, I didn't really know like urban agriculture and food would be my journey even though my very first job was with the city of the council of the environment okay. and i was pruning and pulling out weeds <laughs> my first summer job really early. My hands okay. in the dirt. had no idea yeah. never connected it until recently so you know initially i always thought i was going to work in or I wanted to work in like television or entertainment, marketing even, so film, television, or music. But what I realized over time, especially when I didn't get those opportunities, was what I really appreciated was not just because I have a love of like pop culture and music and art, but I appreciated the creative process that artists bring. And I also at the same time realized more and more that I always volunteered no matter what school I went to. So as elementary, high school, college, I always found a way to volunteer and give back to my community that I was at. So I went to school in Virginia. I used to like work with preschool students. But what it started to really make me realize like shortly after school was that Yes, I had this passion around entertainment, but what really drove me was connecting the dots and how do people explore their creative process, whatever that creative process might be. And, you know, I think being someone who I was a weaver as a, and that was how I tapped into my magic and leadership mm-hmm. was helping folks connect to what they knew and did well that often didn't have like, a voice or didn't feel like they had the access to assets and resources. So what I would do is like, I realized a lot of my volunteering was about trying to make those connections and trying to create more bridges to assets and resources to most impacted folks. And while you can do that in a creative process like entertainment, I started to find out more and more about the food and act space. And I realized like that was something that I could also do as well in that area. And so I know you spent some time at several organizations and then the most recent one before your current role was at Just Food. Without getting into too many of the specifics and just reading off of the resume, what are some of the highlights of some of those experiences and how do you think they prepared you for your current role? Oh, yeah, I think it very much did. You know, like early on in my urban ag and food career, I started as a community advocate. I just was somebody who had a thirst for learning and a passion for action. And I think, again, because I started to see as I got older and came back from college, I also was a single mom. I started to really see the world in a different way. I started to see who had privilege and access to healthy food, you know, different parts of the neighborhood. I think this was also a time in New York where 
the economic disparity started to get really obvious, you know, so I just started to think about what are things that I could do to make a difference. So in terms of my resume, I think ultimately what I found was I've always been inspired by communities, in particular communities that are most impacted. And what I started to realize early in my food and ag journey was how many folks felt like they a, including myself, didn't really understand the food and farm policy that was out there. And what I would say, like, my work really is kind of rooted in is how can I maximize my time, strengthen my voice, and collaborate and build collective power with others mm-hmm. to strengthen their verse and their voice and their work. So I think initially it started as community advocacy. I think I kind of always like lean into it, but I think more and more of my work, it really was about, we understand that there are genuine structural inequities. And even though we live with it, we oftentimes don't know how to dismantle Mm -hmm. them. And what I started to find in the work of urban ag and food was it maybe wasn't my strength to be a grower. It maybe wasn't my strength to be a chef, but what I could do is could I support folks and tapping in what their strengths are so they could be more aware, more engaged, more involved, and how do we bring assets to that? So, you know, I think for a lot of reasons, like my charm, or, you know, got me through certain conversations or being able to make what felt like a farm bill priority be more to be more accessible to the average person mm-hmm. and telling my personal story i realized folks connected to that and then i realized like there's a way to bring in folks where they're still doing the great work that they want to do and what i could do is kind of help build those bridges whether that's building programming you know writing grants amplifying or creating space i mean the reality is you know as much as I've had some disparities in my life, there are all also certain privileges that I have held. And, you know, something that my mom also really taught me, and I think I've learned this growing up early on, is you can always lean into what's comfortable for you, or you can use that to leverage where other folks aren't able to show up. Mm. And how do you say, you know, when you say you want to be a change maker or you say you want to make a difference, how do you do that for yourself, but bring in other folks? How do you learn from, you know, ancestors or how do you learn from folks that have been doing it before? But what are you going to bring in that's going to move the needle that much forward? And I think for me, it was always rooted in impact. Mm. And I realized whether it was food or urban ag or gardening, what I realized was we had more folks than not being a part of the impact or not being a part of solutions. And that was where I could bring my creativity, my thought, my capacity. Where do you think this ability for you to empathize with folks that may not have had the opportunities you've had or communities that are underserved? You know, you mentioned this idea of volunteering a lot and also, you know, this energy of being a change maker. If you look back into your family life or your career life or either other mentors, where do you think like that was developed and nurtured and grew in you? Yeah, I think it's really a mix. I think it's a mix of seeing you know, either going through my lived experiences and what I found myself in, you know, you know, I grew up in the Bronx, we weren't wealthy, but we weren't completely insecure. But it wasn't like I didn't have family that were. And I think, you know, that kind of helped. Again, I think having those early years, being in neighborhoods, 
again, following my mom and her jobs, going from borough to borough, or, you know, when she was hanging out, I got a chance to really see maybe earlier than most folks that different people were struggling and thriving in different ways whether that was through how they worked, whether that was through like building community power, you know, whether that was like organizing or whether it was just like building family. So I think my family, I think my, you know, loved ones kind of helped influence that. But I think also having a lens to this like unique city of New York and seeing when it worked and when it didn't. And I think being able to not be hidden from that. I think my mom was very intentional about certain things for me to see. Like, I think she wanted me to see certain neighborhoods. She would take me to certain neighborhoods to see what was great about those neighborhoods and also what was a hardship. Mm -hmm. So like, I remember really distinctly, there was a window of time, you know, you're in New York. It's very easy to drive through from the Bronx downtown through Harlem, right? You can bypass it completely on our highways or you can take the local streets and you don't stop Mm. and you know in the 80s you know say a neighborhood like harlem was going through it you know you were seeing food insecurity you were seeing economic displacement you were seeing you know drug impacts you know drug use and just the impact that drugs brings to a neighborhood and that was something she did not want me to be ignorant to You know, and there were times when I would see it and we would go or she would say, like, look at what you're seeing. This is where not only where I don't want to see you at, but this is what can be different. And so same, you know, so then if I go back to my neighborhood, if I go back to school, I know those folks aren't seeing the same thing. They don't even talk about the same things. So, you know, I feel like it's kind of a mix. I think with my work, I've been also afforded the opportunity to learn the history the struggle and the successes of urban ag leaders, land stewards, who were in those same neighborhoods that people were saying, drive on the Bruckner and over, you know, drive through, bypass, don't look, don't stop. You know, those same neighborhoods at the same time had folks that were growing, folks that couldn't leave those neighborhoods or didn't want to leave and were in fact growing, building ways to like have food, building ways to build community, even when the systems were broken for them. And so I think growing up in being exposed to it in a realistic way, but at the same time as a way to see what else is out there, I think kind of helped inform for me that there are solutions and there are differences. So it was like, I think to me, it kind of helped establish a baseline of disparity. It helped me see things more as a spectrum than as like siloed. And I think when it comes to like food and at work, and especially even now, like I think it also helps me understand that there's a lot of value between being, you know, like I'm a still a pragmatic person. Yeah. I still like to see a budget because I want people to thrive. You know, so I think what it brings for me is like, how can I bring the visionary aspect of things or the history or the disparities, but how do we actually build feasible solutions that are relevant for multiple models, multiple communities, multiple stakeholders. I feel like that's how it kind of shows up on my work now is like when, you know, how to be strategic about beating which drum and when, but really who should be informing it. And in a way that's not performative or tokenizing, but also like, 
it should be an opportunity for folks to still get what they need, whether that's economic, whether that's housing, whether that's just respite. And I think, you know, the work that we do here with food and ag really kind of speaks to that. And I'm hoping I can create more of that in the city. So many good things there. And the only thing I'm worried about is how much time we have. Because I feel like I oh, want to yeah. just go I deep, I'm so sorry. deep dive on all these I topics. And we can definitely yeah. pick it up in person. Oh, yeah. Hold me yeah, in. Hold no, me that's in. okay. Because no, I'm excited. Because we're going to meet in person. Because I'm going to be at Indoor Ag Tech NYC okay. as well. So we can pick up some of that conversation. But I just want to take a pause to just yeah. congratulate and give kudos and blessings to the people that you mentioned that really held it down for so many years, if not decades, yeah. in those environments, in those conditions who were probably like, you know, doing it in with the toughest of odds, you know, with zero budget, but there was something about them that felt the need to like create these urban yes. gardens. And I imagine like, you know, some of them are probably considered pioneers in the urban ag space in terms mm-hmm. of being able to be that bridge to now these moments now yes. where there are more eyes, there are more resources, but, you know, God bless them for being able to hold that that line, yes. you know, for all this time. So I, I think there's they've done a lot of the heavy lifting, and so they should be congratulated for that. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, I will hone it in. I the one thing I would say that I think is important is when we talk about urban agriculture and we talk about healthy food access in New York City, we need to remember the folks that were the vanguards. Yeah of doing that work out of necessity, mm-hmm. out, of, you know, out of a choice to want to heal their community, out of a choice to want their community to thrive. And not just for their own families, but for other folks. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that you know the work that we do here it is in honor of that, but it also helps inform how do we create initiatives that help minimize climate crisis, mm-hmm. that help minimize food shortages. But again, it's really resiliency in a neighborhood for the folks that live there. Yeah. One thing I found interesting is you mentioned farm bills and we always hear yeah. about those things and I've heard about them growing up and yes. immediately think of like a farm in Nebraska. Yes. And I don't know to what extent and maybe you can shed a little bit of light. We don't have to go too yeah. deep, but just like mm-hmm. when people think and when those are written and the people that write them and who they the majority of the people who benefit from them, I don't know that a lot of people think about <laughs> urban environments as it relates yes. to things like a farm bill. So I'm wondering if there's a little bit of light you could shine on that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we're in this unique window of time where we have like the farm bill policy. And oftentimes folks don't, we're farm bill season, right? They're in negotiations. I think folks oftentimes don't think of urban agriculture as spaces that are based in our like food, like we get food out versus like what we can grow here. And I think this is a great time to kind of touch on it just in terms of agriculture should really be seen as agriculture, like the growing and production of, you know, healthy soils, healthy food, you know, opportunities, whether rural or urban. But I think in terms of policy, we need to use this as a window for folks to really see that also impacts where we live. Luckily, with our urban agriculture, there recently was a program in the last two farm bills that really kind of lifted the importance of urban ag in particular. So while, you know, farm bill policy is right, mainly folks think about it you know, rural farmers, we have to remember we have urban growing and have had urban growing. So I'm really excited to see the innovations that will continue to be supported through the Urban Ag Innovation Program. One thing real quick, something that the office has done to kind of identify ways that folks or support how urban ag growers could 
connect to farm bill policy in a more realistic way that is around urban ag is we helped inform a market bill. Congressman Espia introduced the Growing's Opportunity Innovative Farming Market Bill, which is really great because what it does is say this urban ag is important and folks that are doing urban ag, in particular socially disadvantaged farmers and producers, should have access to farm bill funding as well. So it's really to kind of help find a way to spur the economic activity, the climate resiliency models that are unique to urban agriculture. That's important to know that progress is being made on that front. And when we wrap up, I'll probably get some of these links so I could put them in the show notes yes. if people want to learn more about them. So I'm curious yeah. in terms of your own journey, in terms of the position you're at now, talk a little bit about how that opportunity opened up and the conversations you had that led to your current position. What can I share? Yes. <laughs> you know, I have a long history in working on food, agriculture, and equity. And I think as there had been an increased interest and demand for an office in New York City to really support the breadth of urban agriculture, I think it became a priority of council members and even, you know, borough presidents. You know, one in particular really took the lead was borough president Adams, which is now our mayor, as well as former city council member Rafael Espinal. You know, so I think what folks from advocates from the community side, as well as business interests realize, is that maybe we needed an office that could really support and identify and speak up for, on the interests of our agriculture. So I think how my, you know, real quick, how those intersected was, I think what folks heard was, yes, we need an office that's going to prioritize this as a need, how to really advance equity in urban agriculture in New York City. And I think folks wanted somebody who had an experience in the breadth of urban agriculture, who is willing to work on the inside within an administration, but not forget the stakeholders on the outside to make that those ideas a reality. Yeah, we, I was there last year for Indirect Tech and the open keynote was by Mayor Adams. So it was nice to yes. see, even at that level, the support for what's happening, obviously for urban ag, what's happening within, yes. you know, the topic of this show, vertical farming. Yes. And I'm wondering if how those conversations have been with Mayor Adams. It's, I would assume he's still like a staunch advocate of everything that's happening in the space. Oh, yes. You know, Mayor Adams is a clear advocate for healthy food access, local food procurement, especially hyper-local and within our region, and that folks have that food on their plate and also are able to make the choices around healthy food that they want. And I think also he continues to be an advocate on supporting the breadth of urban agriculture in our city. One thing I think folks often tend to forget that I think is important, especially you know, in this summit, is how do those all intersect? Mm. How do we in New York City be a leader around climate resiliency, equity, a food access, economic activity that doesn't leave folks behind. Yeah. So I think these are definitely the priorities that he has. And I'm excited to kind of talk to folks about their different approaches to it. So that's a beautiful segue into the topic of your talk, which we're going to see at the end of this month. I believe you're talking about the topic of food security. So can you talk a little bit about how you were connected with the organization and a little preview of what's to come? Oh, sure. 
So I'm going to be on the panel on the how to solve the food security puzzle. And what I'm hoping to talk about is one, that urban ag is vibrant in New York City in multiple diverse models. Also, how the city is supportive of controlled environment growing and innovation, um, and also learning about the impact of CEA in New York City so far. The other thing that we're going to talk about, and I'd really love to hear other folks on the panel as well, is we're in the lens of defining food security, how do we do that in our perspective work? And how does the CEA sector kind of innovate through these volatile times around funding to genuinely connect to bringing culturally appropriate and relevant food to a city like New York? I think there's a lot of ways that the city can support, so I'm definitely going to come with my ears open, but I'm happy to share what some of the new and interesting things we've been doing in the mayor's office of urban agriculture. I'm excited for that panel. It's going to be really a really good one. Thank you. Your topic is covering food security, but I also want to delve a little bit into this idea of food justice, because I think it's a term not many people have heard much about, and I feel like they go hand in hand with food security. So I'm wondering if you could talk yes. a little bit about what that means for you? No, great question. You know, oftentimes people talk about food security and one of the main goals of the food security movement is to end hunger. So what I'm hoping we get into on the panel is how can the sector of ag tech address meeting this goal of ending hunger? But when we talk about food security, it doesn't necessarily equate to food justice. And food justice is really about the right to grow, sell, harvest food that community wants and decides on. So what I'm curious to also hear is when we talk about food justice, how are we increasing opportunities for communities, in particular impacted communities, to be a part of the solution of addressing food scarcity in their communities? Are they able to be business owners in these models? Are they able to not just grow and not just grow for profit, but can they grow to feed like what is a really hard approach, which is nutritional food, but also, you know, food that will help us minimize like the hunger gap? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I got to see this firsthand, obviously, in my time in New York mm -hmm. City, but recently at Indoor AgCon, Thanks yes. to the team at Greenside Up took us downtown Las Vegas, the not glamorous part, you know, and oh, but, but you got to see like food deserts and you got to, we got to visit a couple, it was two buses and we went from a, to a couple of like these yeah. in city grocery markets that anyone mm -hmm. who's in the city is very familiar with, like purple sun kissed in the front row and then like mm. produce sections that are all, you know, pretty much empty. And so thankfully yep. it's been nice to see them, some new innovations happening there with a previous guest, uh, a company called Harvest. They've actually installed five container farms inside the space to produce, they're going oh, wow. to start producing. So That's I great. think this idea of food deserts and it's, you know, it's almost like out of sight, out of mind. Sometimes if you're not aware, you take it for granted that you yes. can walk into a Whole Foods and you have all this fresh produce yes. and that's not the case for everyone. And I'm glad to see initiatives like this happening to just increase awareness to what's happening in yes. all these communities. I think it's really important. No, totally. You know, oftentimes folks in urban ag and food spaces, you know, we talk about the distance between supermarkets or access models, but what is missed often in the definition of food deserts is the access to hyperly local grown food and who's growing that food. So, you know, I think what really comes up for me and part of what I'm really interested in 
you know, innovating here in the city is how do we continue to support hyper-local grown production of healthy food? And what are the different models that can do that right in our neighborhood? So we're minimizing maybe historical redlining or, his, you know, or disconnects between where folks were able to start a business, like what's relevant to us now. And I think that's also something, you know, the city is looking at and other agencies too, is how do we really support hyper-local production, hyper-local distribution in a way that, you know, we can also create opportunities for indoor because there's a lot of great, you know, opportunities that could still be climate resilient but still meet a food security need or, you know, dismantling food insecurity. Yeah. So we're, you know, we're minimizing those disconnects, but we're doing it in a way that is relevant for the community. Very important topics. And I'm, again, looking forward to that discussion. It's been hopefully going to be a lively one. And, I know. Uh, I hope yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious what your experience has been with specifically indoor farming, controlled environment yeah. agriculture, because obviously, you know, that's something that rooftop gardens that have been started in Brooklyn as well that I'm sure. familiar with. And I'm curious what your experience has you've begun to become more aware of the opportunities yes. that exist for year-round growing. Yes. You know, one of the things that's going to always be important in addressing, you know, either achieving food justice or food security is like year-round production of healthy food. So I continue to try to learn from and identify partners that are doing that well in New York City, whether it's at a really big scale like Gotham Greens, you know, at retail, or again, are these opportunities for, you know, BIPOC folks or, you know, low income folks to get able to be in like the model, like growing mushrooms and growing mushrooms for community consumption, growing mushrooms for retail. So I would say like, I continue to kind of be informed by the gamut, but also trying to learn like what are their unique needs as partners, as models, as folks that might be new to business, as folks that are proven businesses, what can our city assets do to really advance urban agriculture in those ways? Yeah. And showing that these models exist for smaller entrepreneurs or just getting into this idea of farming, mm-hmm. but it's not how we all would think about, like, if you're going to be a farmer, you got to exactly. be on a farm. And, and now right. you know, because of what you can do and even the yields you can produce, you know, you can literally Absolutely. have a container farm that could supply, you know, a lot of locations. Yes. And I think having help, especially with the business models and, mm-hmm. and the offtake agreements and being sure that people can not only grow, which, you know, a lot of the, these companies can help them with, but you have the crop now, you have someone that's willing to yes. buy it, you know, is there a need for that and helping them make those decisions? Because a lot of times, first time business owners yes. struggle with these. And that's you know where you see a lot of the failures if they don't have that proper planning and that proper support. Oh, totally. You know, it's interesting. You bring up two things that are really big initiatives in the Office of Urban Ag is one, identifying what are the supportive resources, trainings, materials, in particular around food and urban ag that we could provide to uh, New York businesses, in particular small businesses and folks that are even MWB eligible. How do we get folks that typically don't see themselves as business owners to generally connect and get to the point where they're able to do that at a viable point? I think the other thing that you're touching on is the the need to see different models and entry points in order to have that business. So I know for 
for me, one of the things I'm continuing to like learn is like, we oftentimes think about rooftop farms in these really big ways. And folks are still really interested on in what they could do in their average New York, you know, rooftop, yeah. <laughs> you know, whether it's their windowsill or whether it's like their building. Yeah. So I also want to create just more materials and awareness. So folks feel clear on what we do know about rooftop gardening is just one example, you know, from folks that have done it really well and longstanding practices, but how can that be lessons, best practices or lessons learned that we can then share with folks that might have a slightly smaller rooftop and how to make it viable. But again, you know, it's great to have, you know, sweat equity based community at work in any community, but the reality is folks still need economic opportunities. So how do we can support that? Yeah, and I think it, anything you can do to have someone have this feeling of being self-sustainable, I think is really yes. powerful. And, and it's challenging in the city. I've had a taste of it just being out here. I'm now in, in Minnesota and we have a well, so we've access to fresh water. But it's, it's yep. these things that people who grew up here probably take for granted. And people who live in the city, I was in New York City for Hurricane Sandy. And for the mm-hmm. listener, we lost power for, you know, a couple of days. Yeah. And even up in power for a week and I think running water, I think for a day or two. And there's nothing mm-hmm. that shocks you into like the importance of having access to water and yes. food as an event like that. And so I think it was in the same way COVID, right? And oh, yes, totally. Extent, just, and so anything that gives people this sovereignty and agency over their choices, or at least to have some backup plan if they want, you know, it's not going to be anything that's going to be fully sustainable for weeks. But I think all these little initiatives help people feel a bit more secure about their relationship to food. I totally agree. And it's interesting that you bring up sovereignty too, because I think that's like, again, like as I kind of see it as a spectrum. So if we're, you know, establishing a way to address food security on the road to creating food justice, where we're creating more opportunities for more folks, how do we now actually continue to try to strive for sovereignty where there's, you know, as much opportunity and especially the lens of like climate crisis, you know, you really can't talk about urban agriculture and we really can't talk about food production without that lens yeah. mitigating climate crisis, but also how do we recover? And I think that was also something we saw when we hit food shortages or when we hit like power shortages, how critical our resources like electricity, how critical our food chains are. And the closer we are to our food, the closer we are to conserving or saving or utilizing energy well, it will help us like not just survive, but thrive. But if we're not thinking about climate crisis with ag tech and urban ag, then we're really missing the way to make any of this viable and sustainable. So I'm looking forward to having those conversations at the summit too. (laughs) You may have people not letting you leave the conference. They're going to have have a a few minutes of your time. That's fine. I'm here for the people. (laughs) (laughs) This is a question I like to ask, and it probably changes day by day, but what's a tough question you've had to ask yourself lately? All right. That's a good question. One of the hardest questions I continue to ask myself is, am I continuing to remain grounded while being visionary about the work that I'm doing to advance urban agriculture and equity. So it impacts not just some New Yorkers, but it really has a beneficial impact for all New Yorkers. That's a good thing to keep in mind, I'm sure. Hopefully it doesn't keep you up at night, but that's a, good, <laughs> well, that's a lot related to that question. So I just want to 
Thank you for your time. And as we get close to wrapping up, I'm really excited that this was able to get scheduled. And it was <laughs> nice to connect with a fellow New Yorker. I'll, I'll consider myself a New Yorker forever. So that's not going to yes. change. <laughs> and so uh, given the audience, we talked to a lot of CEOs and founders of vertical farming companies from around the world now. And yeah. there's a lot of, you mentioned Gotham Greens, and thankfully I was honored to have Viraj on the show as well. But, oh, great. but that audience is some of the folks who listen. So what I've been doing mm -hmm. is leaving a little bit of room at the end of these conversations as a platform for you. Is there a message when you think about the growing ag tech industry, mm -hmm. vertical farming, and maybe mm -hmm. as it relates to urban environments, but is there a message or anything you'd like to say to those folks? I would say one of the things that I continue to look forward to and look to the ag tech community is to continue to find ways to be innovative and not just production, but building intrinsic value to the work mm. and how do they continue to bring food, healthy models, economic opportunities to our diverse communities of New York City. So I'm always keeping my eye out on what is being innovative in their landscape, but also how do they bring that back to the city? That's something that folks are going to be happy to hear. So <laughs> thanks for including that. So again, thank, no, thank, you. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're a very busy person and you've got a lot on your plate, pun intended. <laughs> but I look I forward love a good to, to meeting you in person and attending that session. Where's the best place for folks to connect with you outside of the conference? Oh, yes. I always encourage folks to find me on the office official social media. Okay. We are an at NYC Urban Ag. Okay. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Okay. Thank you so much again for your time. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, Harry. Appreciate it. Special thanks to Kiana for coming on the show. I know she's been super busy with all the work she's doing for New York City and prepping for this conference and everything else that's on our plate. So I really appreciate her taking time out of her busy schedule to join here and for sharing her story. Very inspiring story. Thank you, Kiana. As always, full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Special thanks to our Season 8 title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co and see if a podcast is just what you and or your brand and or company might need. As a reminder, if you're enjoying this episode, if you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, leave us a rating and a review. Leave me a rating and a review from you personally at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Nothing would please me more than to read that out on a future episode. Stay tuned. Coming up this week, likely tomorrow, if we can get the planning done right, but it should be in your podcast inbox, another conversation with another amazing attendee at the conference. Round two with Nona Yehia of Vertical Harvest. What a fantastic and inspiring conversation this was. This one's coming to you soon. So get caught up on these episodes. Okay, until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published. 